In an article published in the journal of Personality Assessment, Robert A. Mednick tells us that as far back as the 12th century, sexual fantasy was considered a supernatural visitation, and until the turn of the 20th century, the notion persisted even within the medical community that the activity was evidence of demonic possession. Indeed, during the Middle Ages, women accused of witchcraft often recounted extraordinary sexual fantasies. During their interrogations, witch finders Matthew Hopkins and John Stern compelled the accused to divulge evidence of diabolical witchcraft. Unlike those of some witch finders who were focused on demonology, the confessions extracted by Watkins and Stern, along with other prurient witch finders of their ilk, combined the women's knowledge of the devil with their sexual fantasies. When frightened and under duress, the women who confessed witchcraft offered narratives about demonic sex. Their vernacular language of sin was wrapped in sexuality. However, in the popular mind, this identification of sexual fantasy and demons has not gone away, even in these enlightened times. In a recent book entitled Demon Possession Handbook, the author J.F. Jeff Coogan of Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania wrote, Demons have a demonstrated interest in illicit human sexual activity. Satan has used demons to contaminate your normal, God-given sexual desires. These notions and attitudes have not always been dominant in many other human cultures. In India, the first mention of Krishna occurred in the Chandyoga Upanishad. Scholars have offered different estimates of the Shandoga Upanishad's date, ranging from 800 BCE to 600 BCE, all preceding Buddhism. In India, the love of Lord Krishna and Radha has been an archetypal sexual fantasy for thousands of years and continues to be to this day. In her interviews with temple dancers at Orissa, noted French anthropologist Frédéric Affelmarglin highlighted the fact that when these women talk of the love Prema, of Radha, and other cowherdesses, they do not mean a chaste, platonic love, but refer specifically to the fantasy, conscious in this case, but unconscious in many others, of unending and sustained sexual excitement. The absence of kama, or lust, in Radha's love for Krishna does not mean the absence of desire, but rather the absence of orgasm. The dancers, who seek to enact for themselves the tension and intensity of the mythical cowherdesses, explicate this distinction by stating that one of Krishna's names was Akuta, the one whose seed does not fall. What is the meaning of Krishna's retention of his seed? She asks. First, there is the testimony of everyday experience in which sexual pleasure is only momentary. After orgasm, the pleasurable erotic tension is gone. In such a manner, one attains only temporary pleasure or happiness. Furthermore, by ejaculating, one loses one's strength and becomes old. In this world, the world of samsara, pleasure is brief, and one begets children, whereas in the divine play of Krishna, there is continuous pleasure, nitya, and no children. Krishna's erotic dalliance with the gopis has no ulterior purpose. It exists for itself, in itself. 
In other words, in the fantasy of Radha and Krishna, pleasure, the fantasy of pleasure, is glorified for its own sake. This is in dramatic distinction to some Christian notions which, as we have seen, view sexual fantasy as evidence of demonic possession. It must be noted, however, that the era of the Buddhist domination of Indian society brought with it Buddhism's somber view of life, in which the god of love was identified with Mara, or death. And love did not enter through the back door, so to speak, of erotic mysticism, as it arguably, very arguably in our opinion, did in the contemporaneous eroticism of the Christian Middle Ages in which Christ was conceived and conceived passionately as a young bridegroom. Sigmund Freud based his theories of unconscious and psychological development on the link between undischarged libidinal, that is to say sexual tensions, and neurosis. He postulated that when a conscious imaginary wish fulfillment, the fantasy, was unacceptable to the fantasizer, it became repressed. Thus it can be argued that the study of sexual fantasies laid the foundation for the birth of psychoanalysis, since repression is the basis of Freud's theory of the mind. I personally believe that repression, the playing field of our overactive ego and superego, is where, in many people, sensuality is defeated. But that's another topic for another time. Back to Freud. Freud's suggestion about the universality of libidinal impulses has been supported by contemporary empirical research which reveals that between 90 and 97% of people experience sexual fantasies. Since Freud, the synthesis of findings has revealed that sexual fantasy is often constituted by images and scenarios that differ from heteronormative and mononormative Western sociocultural expectations of sexual practices and forms of desire. Such quote, deviant, unquote, sexual fantasies, deviant not being a part of this podcast vocabulary, by the way, have sometimes been found to cause anxiety, guilt, fear, and shame, back to shame later, in the fantasizer. These disturbing feelings often prevent the fantasizer from looking at his or her fantasies with their sexual partners and even by themselves, resulting in silence around sexual fantasy. In an article published in the Journal of Sex Research, Bruce J. Ellis of the University of Michigan and Donald Simons of the University of California at Santa Barbara remind us that sexual fantasies are the most common form of human sexual experience. Austrian-American sex therapist Helen Singer Kaplan was known as the sex queen because of her advocacy that people should enjoy sexual activities as much as possible. She was also the founder of the first clinic in the United States for sexual disorders at a medical school. In an article published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, she wrote, Sex is composed of friction and fantasy. Another way of stating this would be to say that for humans, unlike for so-called lower forms of life, there is no sex without fantasy. Sexual activity always has a fantasy component. However, what role does that fantasy component play in our sex lives? And in her book, Mating in Captivity, Reconciling the Erotic and the Domestic, Esther Perel writes, Fantasies, sexual and otherwise, have nearly magical powers to heal and renew. They return the breasts confiscated by mastectomy, 
or let us walk as we did before the crippling accident. They reverse time, making us young again, and briefly allow us to be as we no longer are, or maybe never were, flawless, strong, beautiful, or bring back memories of passionate lovemaking with a partner we now struggle to eroticize. Through fantasy, we repair, compensate, and transform. For a few moments, we rise above the reality of life and subsequently the reality of death. It is now considered a pathology not to have sexual fantasies rather than to have them. For example, infrequent sexual fantasies is one of the defining criteria for sexual disorder, inhibited sexual desire, described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the manual shrinks use to label your particular form of craziness. Hmm. Indeed, sexual fantasy is good. In his Ph.D. dissertation at the University of Pennsylvania, Richard A. Leeds suggested that a comprehensive theory of sexual desire should have as its central idea the concept of fantasy. It is evident that all fantasies are constructed from the psychodynamic concept associated with internal working models, which is to say, internal working representations which are able to predict responsiveness from an attachment figure, one's potential or actual lover, and which confirm worthiness of the self. This conclusion was drawn with reference to multiple books and articles by British psychoanalyst John Bowlby. Both Helen Singer Kaplan of the Weill Cornell Medical College and Robert J. Stoller of the UCLA Gender and Identity Clinic make allusions to the symbolic dynamics of those fantasies which script the self as powerful or as in control. In this sense, sexual fantasies are egocentric, meaning that they are acceptable to the needs and goals of the ego or consistent with one's ideal self-image. They are, in truth, in tune with one's ego. By means of fantasy, persons are enabled, in virtual reality, to find resolution to sexual issues, whereas in the real world, resolution is elusive. It's always beyond one's reach. But what about persons who do not have sexual fantasies? In an article published in the Psychological Bulletin, Harold Leitenberg and Chris Henning of the University of Vermont Note that it is now considered a sign of pathology not to have sexual fantasies rather than to have them. For example, infrequent sexual fantasy is one of the defining criteria for the sexual disorder, inhibited sexual desire, again going back to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the one the shrinks use. In 1908, Sigmund Freud, in his paper Creative Writers and Daydreaming, argued that sexual fantasies reflect sexual dissatisfaction and deprivation and that they occur in compensation for a lack of other enjoyable sexual stimuli. In the same paper, Freud wrote that a happy person never fantasizes, only an unsatisfied one. Other psychoanalytic theorists have espoused similar negative views about sexual fantasies suggesting that they are the result of sexual dissatisfaction, immaturity, frustration, inhibition, masochism, and unconscious sexual conflicts, especially in women. Love those psychoanalysts. 
One of the psychoanalytic theorists holding this negative view of sexual fantasies was actually Wilhelm Reich in his 1942 book, The Discovery of the Orgone, The Function of the Orgasm. However, evidence fails to support the Freudian position and that of some of his immediate followers. In fact, traditional wisdom has been turned upside down by research findings. To reiterate what we stated before, and we cannot stress this too strongly, it is now considered a sign of pathology not to have sexual fantasies rather than to have them. Ethel S. Pearson and her fellow investigators found out that the results from most studies are contrary to Freud's assertion that the usual motivation for sexual fantasies is unsatisfied wishes. Fantasies cannot be viewed as compensations for lack of experience if they are positively correlated with the type of sexual experiences people actually have. Hello? That having been said, sexual fantasy has been associated with certain dispositions and personality types. Matthias Karlstadt, Sven A. Bode, and Torsten Norlander of the Department of Psychology at Karlstadt University studied the affect states of sexual fantasizers. Their results showed that self-destructive and high-affective, that is to say depressed, personality types had more sexual fantasies compared to self-actualizing and low-affective types. Those same results suggest that positive affectivity is associated with external transparency, that is, a susceptibility to stimuli from the outside world, while negative affectivity is associated with internal transparency, that is, a tendency to look inward, to reflect, and fantasize. In other words, those who do not, or who are unable to self-actualize in the real world, are more likely to turn to sexual fantasies as are individuals who suffer from depression. What's the answer here? Actualize your fantasies, boys and girls. Why not? According to J.J. Miller in his book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You to Improve Your Sex Life, within the United States, 97% of individuals report having experienced sexual fantasy. He goes on to observe that many people hope or plan to engage in specific behaviors they fantasize about. He found that open relationships were most fantasized about, followed by polyamory, then swinging, and then cuckolding, his term for group sex where someone watches their partner having sex with another person. Hmm. Although many studies have examined sexual fantasy from a standpoint based on psychopathology, Emerging perspectives in academia hold that this experience is completely normal and even potentially beneficial component of sexuality. In an article published in the Journal of Sex Research, Ron Harris, Sergio Eulis, and Diane Lacoste reported that the ability to have detailed sexual fantasies was associated with greater self-reported arousal to various sources of sexual stimulation in both women and men. In tune with this, in a study published in 2019 in the journal Personality and Social Science Bulletin, Gerrit Birnbaum and her associates conducted an examination of the ways in which sexual fantasies about one's romantic partner, which were referred to as dyadic fantasies, impacted participant relationships. They found that individuals who experienced more frequent dyadic fantasies, that is, those about their partner, 
also engage more frequently in behaviors that would promote the health of the relationship. Overall, dyadic fantasizing was associated with heightened desire and increased engagement in relationship-promoting behaviors. Relationship perceptions explain the link between dyadic fantasies and relationship-promoting behaviors, suggesting that such fantasies benefit the relationship by enhancing partner and relationship appeal. We must never lose sight of the fact that, as stated emphatically by Nina S. Fields in an article published in the journal Social Work, a satisfying sexual relationship is a basic need to establish an intimate relationship and also acts as a central basis of marriage. This fundamental precept is reiterated by Susan Sprecher in an article published in the Journal of Sex Research. She stressed that sexual satisfaction is essential to the overall relationship satisfaction of married couples. I would extend that to say in relationships, which by mutual understanding have entered the sexual phase. Great sex is a necessary, but not sufficient, criteria for a relationship as well as for a marriage. According to philosopher Kendall Wilson, when engaging with fantasies, we only ever pretend to experience fear, lust, or anger. When playing games of make-believe, such as consuming fictional films and novels, we don't really experience the appropriate emotions demanded of us by the works. Rather, we only ever adopt phenomenologically similar emotion-like states of mind, states which Walton dubs quasi-emotions. Technically, in fictive contexts, the movies, etc., we only ever experience quasi-emotions that are interestingly similar to the emotions they allow us to pretend to be experiencing. However, in sexual fantasizing, people are actually sexually aroused, not quasi-sexually aroused. What would be the point? Backing this up, it has been empirically established that the very same physiological responses had during orgasm can be induced by imagery used in fantasizing and genital self-stimulation. There is a wealth of evidence that sexual arousal and emotions do causally interact. Emotions that involve a general state of arousal, anxiety, anger, are likely to increase sexual arousal. On the other side of the coin, some forms of extreme emotional arousal have strong potential to interfere with basic genital response. In other words, anger or even anxiety can be sexually arousing, but not always. It depends on the situation, on the context, and on the other person involved in the sexual activity or fantasy. The fact is that women who sexually fantasize regularly also show higher rates of orgasm, both during masturbation and intercourse. It seems safe to assume that this is also true for men. Well, that depends on one's definition of male orgasm. We did an entire episode devoted to this, to male orgasm, on this podcast. So it seems that there will be many cases in which sexual fantasy plays the role of helping to bring about predictable behavioral outcomes. They play a part in completing and bringing sexual acts to, so to speak, their natural conclusions. As for which sexual fantasies are most popular, David Sue of the University of Michigan had participants rate the frequency of 13 different fantasies. The two most frequent for both men and women involved oral genital sexual activity. 
and others finding one sexually irresistible. Neuropsychologist Karen Shanor, in research reported in her book, The Fantasy Files, a study of the sexual fantasies of contemporary women, found that the five most frequently occurring fantasies in the 300 women she interviewed were sex with a new male partner, replay of a prior sexual experience, sex with a celebrity, seducing a younger man or boy, sex with an older man, and sex with the host of this podcast. Just making sure you're paying attention out there. Not that you shouldn't have that fantasy, I rather encourage it. Women are more likely to have submission fantasies, whereas men are more likely to have dominance fantasies. Although, both types of force fantasies may indirectly be serving the same purpose, affirming sexual power and irresistibility. This is important. It is often assumed that women's oft-reported submission fantasies are about, if you will, a sense of disempowerment on the part of the woman, whereas in fact such fantasies may be about a variety of empowerment. Empowerment which comes from an affirmation of the woman's irresistibility. James H. Price of the University of Toledo, Diane D. Allensworth, and Kathleen S. Hillman found, as Masters and Johnson had found before them, a striking similarity in the content of the fantasies of homosexual and heterosexual individuals whom they studied, except for the gender of the imagined partner. The top five fantasies for their heterosexual male sample were having partner perform oral sex, performing oral sex, anticipating sexual activity with their current partner, having sex with more than one partner at a time, and being with someone other than their present sexual partner. The corresponding top five for their heterosexual female sample were anticipating sexual activity with their current partner, having a partner perform oral sex, being irresistible to the opposite sex, having sex with more than one person at a time, and being held and touched. Interesting. In research published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, William B. Arndt, John C. Fool, president of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society, and Ethelaine Good of Harvard University Medical School reported that using factor analysis, four sets of fantasy themes were identified for both males and females who were administered the Guilford Zimmerman Temperament Survey. The four factors of the female fantasy themes were romance, variety, suffering, and dominance. The four factors of the male fantasy themes were force, same-sex, unpopular, and macho. Wow! The themes for both genders invite the question as to whether toxic shame affects sexual fantasies. Are sexual fantasies driven by a sense of unworthiness brought on by toxic shame? For a fascinating and very useful definition of toxic shame and a discussion of its effects on lives and relationships, I refer you to a recent episode by psychotherapist Anita DeFrancesco in her outstanding Discover Joyous Love podcast. As throughout this exploration, we observe that different researchers using different experimental populations and different methodologies come up with different results as to the prominence or popularity, quote-unquote, of fantasies. By summarizing these various studies, it is hoped that commonalities will become apparent and a general picture will emerge. However, 
Again referring to the phenomenon and pathology of toxic shame, in his doctoral dissertation at the California School of Professional Psychology, Fresno, Raymond E. Brody reported that anxiety over abandonment is associated with extreme worry about being rejected by a partner and reflects an internalized perception of oneself as being unlovable. Toxic shame. He goes on to state that anxiously attached individuals may enter into intimate relationships and sexual activities with relational worries and a substantial amount of sexual fantasies. Furthermore, such persons may not find the sexual activity as satisfactory as they expected and perceive it as a romantic rejection that, in turn, may increase their sexual fantasies, aggravate their attachment and security, and decrease their relational satisfaction. In a certain way, this takes us back to Freud and others' notion of sexual fantasy as compensation, at least for certain individuals with relational worries. And also, I might add, for certain idealists, in the sense of Plato, for whom reality is never good enough. Only in this case, it is not God in whose mind the ideals, whether the ideal of the good or the ideal of the perfect orgasm, exist, but in the mind of the individual fantasizer. Which circles back to our very first episode. Fantasy must assist one in exalting in real experience, not set up an unattainable ideal which would lead to inevitable disappointment. In an article entitled Death Anxiety and Sexual Fantasy, Published in Omega, the Journal of Death and Dying, Robert A. Mednick, Ph.D., of the Postgraduate School of Mental Health, states that, since both sexual ideation and death anxiety are high affective-laden states, the contention arises that the preoccupation with sexual fantasy may represent a displacement for the repressed death anxiety. So, people fantasize about sex to avoid thinking about death. Although arguably, the other may also be true. Do some people fantasize about death to avoid thinking about sex? There are people who will do virtually anything to avoid thinking about sex, and particularly about sensuality, physical closeness, tenderness. Sex as it is most profoundly expressed. At any rate, in her dissertation at Radcliffe College, Ellen Greenberger commented on the sexualization of death stimuli by women. In an article published in Psychological Reports, Joyce Paris and Leonard D. Goodstein note that the association between death and sexuality is more characteristic of women than of men. In an article entitled Cognitive Synergies in Erotic Fantasies, Eric Lunas, French psychologist and author of numerous psychological books in French, and Michael J. Apter, British psychologist who has taught at a slew of major universities, including Northwestern and Yale, concluded that sexual fantasies can be grouped into structures. Temporal structures, that is, structures involving time, include three phases. A the build-up phase, in which the individual specifies for him or herself the situation, the context, the characters, their balance of power, their roles and states. b. The action phase, during which an erotic history proceeds in the form of a scenario. During this action phase, a rhythmic structure appears, an 
onanorhythm, as they refer to it, and which consists in the repetition of the same scene of the fantasy. This repetition, moreover, is marked by the evolution in crescendo of one element of the scene or of the action, like progressive stripping, introduction of new characters, etc., and C, the final phase of the fantasy, which comprises two substructures that fit into each other, the final triggering phrase, that is to say, a complete transformation of the fantasy contents, like the inversion of the roles between the characters with the sudden changes of context intended to trigger the orgasm. Interesting the idea that the inversion of the roles between the characters might be that very element which, in fact, triggers the orgasm. Hmm. Thematic structures include four broad themes which are found in the majority of erotic fantasies. A. The transgression theme. To do something sexually prohibited. To reverse a taboo. B. The phallic exhibition theme. From a psychoanalytic point of view, a very explicit exposition of the male or female adult or child, sexual organs, in an advanced state of excitation. C. The constraint theme, in which the desire dominates the prohibition, or the reverse. And D. The humiliation theme, an absurd mixture of sexual excitation and shame. The humiliation of one of the characters in an erotic fantasy is never a true or traumatic moral wound. It is, rather, a mixed and ambiguous feeling of sexual shame and sexual excitation at the same time. Phallic exhibition of penis or vulva is the other face of this ambiguity synergy. The more sexually excited the character is, which is symbolized by the exhibition of sexual organs, the more he is humiliated, and the more he is humiliated, the more he is excited. Each of us may wish to ask themselves if this pattern, this scenario, is related to their own sexual fantasies. And once again, we are returned to the theme of shame. It is shame which provokes in us the desire to be humiliated. And it is only in the context of shame, of humiliation, that full sexual excitement can take place. Shame brings us back once again to repression. We repress thoughts and even experiences of which we are ashamed. However, as discussed both by Freud and by us, most things that we repress return, often in ways which are debilitating to our lives. They come back. It's like a horror film. It is truly a terrifying thought to conceive of sexual excitement and shame always going hand in hand, even feeding off each other. It is the view of this podcast that polymorphous sensuality, this being a term we prefer to Norman O. Brown's polymorphous perversion, and embodied spirituality are the tools we must learn to break the stranglehold that shame holds over our bodies and over our minds. To repeat, polymorphous sensuality, embodied spirituality. Of course, there are other ideas and other approaches that can be helpful. Alexandra Kate Hawkes of the Center for Healthy Sex wrote an article entitled Sexual Fantasy and Adult Attunement, Differentiating Praying, Praying with an E, from Playing, which was published in the American Journal of Play, from which I shall now quote. 
Our culture seems sexually saturated in a novel, curiously unplayful way. Pornography, the ultimate prescripted, predictable goad to isolated lust, often takes center stage. Bereft of the spontaneous, real-time play, so crucial to healthy sexual and other development and enjoyment, porn-based sex, like trauma-conditioned sex, can be robotic, disembodied, and dissociative. It becomes a body-based affect disconnected from the self and therefore from a partner, hardly a portal to the erotic. Genuine play, on the other hand, engages us in enriched emotional, psychological, and neurobiological levels simultaneously. And our unrehearsed responses to sexual play unite our mind, brain, and body for optimal satisfaction. An array of playful activities, kissing, huggling, tickling, caressing, visual, and finally genital stimulation, precede sex, making sex a subset of play. That idea really turned me on, if I may say. Sex as a subset of play. Fantastic. This reminds me of psychologist Bernie Silberfeld's book, The New Male Sexuality, in which he writes... Fantasies are not only fun, but they can partially satisfy the psychological need for variety. It enables people to do, in fantasy, sexual things they do not ordinarily have a chance to do, or with partners they have no access to. I'll mention one of mine later. Partner to whom I have no access. But back to Alexandra Katehakis' study of sex and play. Once again we quote, Women's aims in sex appear more subtle than men's. They seek connection and pleasure rather than the specific endpoint of orgasm, though they do report more overall sexual satisfaction if they experience orgasm than if they do not. During high sexual arousal, a woman's left amygdala is calmed, dispelling anxiety in her left lateral orbital frontal cortex, responsible for conscious emotions, seems to decrease in blood flow, indicating its disinhibition in order to allow bodily pleasure and joyful sex. It is precisely this lessening of stress and of rational control that allows orgasm. This was also reported by Francesco Bianchi di Michele and Stephanie Ortuga in the article Toward an Understanding of the Cerebral Structures of Women's Orgasm, published in the journal Neuropsychologia. The same orgasm-related phenomenon is achieved by the deactivation of the left and right amygdala favoring performance in men. Alexandra Kate Hawkes, whom we have been quoting, asked women to report their sexual fantasies during a workshop. The list of fantasies surprised her because, despite their detail and emotional variance from demure to daring, they shared the same common theme. To wit, the fantasies showed their creators wielding ultimate control. Women fantasize wielding control. The fanciful content specifically counteracted the tedium they reported in their actual sex lives. In a study published in the journal Personality and Individual Differences, Glenn D. Wilson and Rudy J. Lang of the Department of Psychology, Institute of Psychiatry, London, reported the results of a detailed sexual fantasy questionnaire 
that was completed anonymously and returned by post by a sample of 90 Londoners. Factor analysis revealed four main types of fantasy. One, exploratory, e.g., group sex, promiscuity, homosexuality. Two, intimate, e.g., kissing, oral sex, outdoor love. Three, impersonal, e.g., watching others, fetishism, using objects for stimulation. Four, sadomasochistic, e.g., whipping or spanking, being forced. Very interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly for some, reports of many fantasies were accompanied by satisfaction in women, but by dissatisfaction, frustration, in men. Wilson and Lang explained this finding in terms of the higher average level of libido in men than in women, with the consequent difficulty experienced by men in acting out those fantasies. French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan might offer a different explanation. He would say that the object of fantasy is what he called objet petit a, which stands for the unattainable object of desire. It is sometimes called the object cause of desire. Lacan introduced the concept of objet petit a as the Kleinian imaginary part object, which I have discussed in several previous episodes an element which is imagined as separable from the rest of the body. In his seminar Le Transfer, delivered in 1960 and 1961, Lacan articulates objet a with the term agalma, a Greek word meaning an ornament. Just as the agalma is a precious object hidden in a worthless box, so objet petit a is the object of desire which we seek in the other. The box can take many forms, all of which are unimportant. The importance lies in what is inside the box, the cause of desire. So the fantasy is the worthless box which we strive to open to find the true cause of desire, which is, by its very nature, unattainable. Back to the characteristics of sexual fantasizers. In their study, Barbara E. Harriton and Jerome Singer found that high sexual fantasizers tended to be aggressive, exhibitionistic, impulsive, autonomous, and dominant. Harriton and Singer noted that these characteristics are indicative of creative individuals. The same researchers found that high sexual fantasizers scored low on the traditional feminine traits of nurturance and affiliation. Low sexual fantasizers, and this is interesting, Low sexual fantasizers tended to express marital dissatisfaction, poor parental relations, and rarely reported orgasms during intercourse. Those who do not fantasize are less likely to have orgasms. Now, Sari von Anders of the Department of Psychology, Gender Studies, and Neuroscience at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, reports that research links explicit sexuality, that is to say, physical attraction and pleasure, to high testosterone, and nurturance, loving contact, to low testosterone. Engaging in sexual fantasies, which can include explicit sexual and nurturing elements, increases testosterone in women but not in men. The results of her study demonstrated that in men, 
lower inclusion of nurturant content predicted larger responses to fantasy. So, when men fantasized about nurturant situations, caring, loving, and giving context, one might say, they had a lower testosterone response. Which is another way of saying that this nurturant content, quote-unquote, was not sexually arousing for men. Your host is different in this regard, <clears throat> but back to the research. In Van Ander's study, fantasy content was not linked with testosterone in women or with estradiol in women or men. Women and men did not differ significantly in explicit sexual and nurturant content. However, their testosterone levels indeed did differ. Curious. Well-known psychological writer concentrating on sexual issues, Albert Ellis, claimed that fantasy is a creative behavior and essential for a happy sex life. His belief in the importance of sexual fantasy in marriage was revealed when he proposed teaching couples to daydream during coitus. Hmm. In actuality, sexual fantasizing during sexual intercourse is quite common for both men and women. Unlike masturbation, however, there is no evidence of any consistent difference between men and women in sexual fantasy during coitus. Of the six studies in which a direct comparison is possible, four studied virtual identical percentages of women and men who reported having sexual fantasies during intercourse. In their research in Canada, Claude Crippol and Marcel Couture found that 49% of men said they had sexual fantasies during intercourse, often to always, in comparison with 53% of women. The first occurrence of sexual fantasy during intercourse appears to begin later, on the average, for women than for men. In response to the question, when did you first begin to fantasize during sexual intercourse, 35.7% of the men said, from the very beginning, as compared to 17.8% of the women. Only 6% of men reported stating after two or more years, in comparison with 21% of women. Sex therapists routinely encourage women who are not orgasmic to use sexual fantasies during masturbation and intercourse. Studies have generally found that frequency of sexual fantasy is either positively correlated with ratings of general sexual satisfaction, especially in women, or unrelated to sexual satisfaction. When asked whether they focused more on visual images or on feelings, 57% of the women and only 19% of men said feelings, whereas 81% of the men, as compared with 43% of the women, said visual imagery. Younger, unmarried women are more likely to fantasize about their current lover. Married women, on the other hand, are more likely to fantasize about other men. In other words, their husbands cease to be the basis of their sexual fantasies which is, in a certain way, a shame. Shame used here in the colloquial sense, not in the toxic shame sense. In a study published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, Barbara E. Harriton and Jerome Singer found that 65% of the subjects reported moderate to high levels of erotic fantasies during intercourse, with imaginary lover and submission the commonest theme. And by examining the factor content of the fantasies, 
found they were unrelated to interpersonal problems or lack of sexual fulfillment. So it is, in fact, not because they're lacking sexual fulfillment or of interpersonal problems that they fantasize while having sex. This should be viewed in the context that in a study reported in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, Susanna Cato and Heron Leitenberg reported that in a sample of 178 male and female respondents, approximately 25% of both men and women experienced considerable guilt about having sexual fantasies while making love with a partner. Now, in reporting this, we must emphasize the crucial distinction between guilt and shame. Shame being an unpleasant, self-conscious emotion typically associated with a negative evaluation of the self, withdrawal motivations, and feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, and worthlessness. And guilt being when a person believes or realizes, accurately or not, that they have compromised their own standards of conduct or have violated universal moral standards and bear significant responsibility for their violation. As an aside, it is interesting to note that for Jacques Lacan, the imaginary is the realm of image and imagination, deception and lure. The principal illusions of the imaginary are those of wholeness, synthesis, autonomy, duality, and above all, similarity. For him, the imaginary is distinguished from the symbolic and the real, although they form a part of the same triad. The imaginary order is the realm of fundamental narcissism, by which the human subject creates fantasy images of both himself and his ideal object of desire. So bear in mind that within the context of the imaginary order, one's image of oneself is an imaginary image. But back to fantasizing during intercourse and otherwise. According to a study by Clark McCauley of Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, published in the Journal of Research and Personality, when fantasizing, males are thinking more about past experiences and current behavior, while females are thinking more about imaginary experiences. This difference occurs for thoughts during masturbation as well as for thoughts during heterosexual activity, including intercourse. Women reported fantasizing more about imaginary experiences because these thoughts increased arousal, decreased anxiety about the sexual experience, compensated for a less-than-ideal sexual experience, and enhanced, in some cases, an already satisfying experience. In Harriton and Singer's study, they found that among women, the most commonly experienced fantasy was of an imaginary romantic lover, followed closely by, I imagine that I am being overpowered or forced to surrender, reliving a sexual experience, and pretending that I am doing something wicked or forbidden. Males, in contrast, use thoughts of previous experiences to increase arousal, to control and direct sexual activity, and to decrease worry about such activity. Hmm. So while you're having sex, if you fantasize about some, something else, you have less worry about your sexual activity? A.K. In a study published in the journal Personality and Individual Differences, Glenn D. Wilson and Rudy J. Lang of the Institute of Psychiatry in London reported that imagining having sex with one's current lover appears to be the most popular sexual daydream when one is not engaged in sexual activity, 
whereas imagining sex with a new partner is a more popular fantasy during intercourse. An explanation offered for this by some psychologists is that married women, women in long-term relationships, become bored, or to employ a word we used in our episode on polyamory, habituated to their husbands and thus mentally replace him in the fantasies they have, especially during intercourse, but also otherwise. This brings us back once again to Jacques Lacan, who held that the sexual drives are directed not toward a whole person, but towards part objects. There is, therefore, no such thing as a sexual relationship between two subjects, only between a subject and a partial object. For the man, the object A, objet petit A, the object of desire which we seek in the other and which we mentioned earlier, occupies the place of the missing partner, which produces the math theme of fantasy. In other words, the woman does not exist for the man as a real subject, but only as a fantasy object, the cause of his desire. On the other hand, one might ask, if in the same way, man does not exist for the woman. As something rooted in the real, sex for Lacan is opposed to meaning. And sex, in opposing itself to sense, is also, by definition, opposed to relation, to communication. In research published in the journal Research in Personality, Daniel Nafo and Yoram Jaffe examined gender differences in fantasies of 30 male and 30 female American Tel Aviv University students. The authors found no significant differences in the percentage of males and females experiencing fantasies during masturbation, 90% versus 96%, coitus, 90% versus 90%, no difference, and non-sexual behavior, 96%, versus 100%. It is worth emphasizing that their study found a high percentage of women, 9 out of 10, who fantasized during intercourse. Nafo and Jaffe found that the number of fantasies differed as a function of activity passivity during intercourse. More fantasy use was found among individuals who were passive rather than active in the sex act. The motoric effort required by sexually active individuals may make fantasizing difficult, and or active individuals may concentrate more on stimulation and do not need fantasy to increase arousal. Nafu and Jaffe found that of the 21 fantasies on their list, the one that was reported to occur most frequently during intercourse by women in their sample was imagining that I am being overpowered However, this was only the fourth most frequent fantasy during masturbation and the fifth most frequent fantasy during non-sexual activity. Here it is intriguing to note that while women are masturbating, being overpowered is low on the list in terms of what types of fantasies they are more likely to have. In my view, there are few things more exciting, gratifying, and contributive to strong love than a woman who is powerful during sex, either in genital sex or during so-called foreplay. However, I digress. Back to some extremely interesting research. Alexander Kate Hawkes of the Center for Healthy Sex suggests if one partner fantasizes in silence about someone else during sex with another who is not privy to it, not privy to the fantasy, implicit nonverbal processes telegraph emotional abuse abandonment, or disinterest. 
both parties remained in their metaphoric separate corners, the auto-regulatory vacuum of a one-person system. Neurobiologically, and therefore psychologically, each individual in this couple, fantasizer and partner, feels lonely, unconnected, and sexually used. To quote her, unconscious perception and brain chemistry prove powerfully destructive agents, indeed. Which brings us to the matter of sharing fantasies with one's lover rather than fantasizing solipsistically in the cavern of one's own mind. In his Ph.D. thesis at the University of Kansas, M. Anderson found that individuals who were more willing to discuss their own and their partner's fantasies reported higher satisfaction with their sexual relationship and with their relationship in general than those who were less willing to disclose their fantasies. And that willingness varied with the type and specificity of the fantasy. He also found that those who had actually shared their sexual fantasies with their partner reported higher sexual satisfaction than those who had not shared, but that these groups of people did not differ in relationship satisfaction, overall relationship satisfaction, we might say. And here we must remark that in any event, sexual satisfaction is a necessary component of relationship satisfaction, irrespective of any lack of statistical correlation in Anderson's study. There is also the consistent question of the direction of causation, or which is the supposed independent variable, the hypothesized or supposed cause, and which is the dependent variable, the element affected by that hypothesized or supposed cause. But back to sharing fantasies, or should I say, to the wonders of sharing fantasies. We'll have more sexual fantasies for you after a break. Welcome back. In her dissertation at Smith College, Gillian Marie Weiss wrote, rather than simply sharing the fantasy used during masturbation with one's partner, couples can create a fantasy together. The creation of a shared fantasy can develop a connection between partners, aid in helping couples to relate with humor and stay in the moment, as well as raise the stimulation level and reach orgasm. Fantasy as a way of staying in the moment. That really got to me. I really agree with that. Weiss concluded that there is a connection between sharing fantasy with one's partner to create intimacy or to enhance intimacy that already exists. In Weiss's study, 
She asked her subjects if sharing fantasy increases intimacy. 100% of Hispanics answered yes, along with 80% of African Americans, 78% of Caucasians, 75% of multiracial, and 33.3% of others. Does that others include alien species from other planets? I don't know. We have to look into that. With all ethnicities combined, it appears that 79.2% of women determined that sharing fantasy, sharing their fantasies with their partners, with their mates, enhances intimacy, compared with 20.8% who think that it does not. Also, 73.8% of women concluded that their positive experience with sexual fantasy assisted them in feeling more comfortable and sexually open with their partners, compared to 26.2% who said that it does not. Well, she does not specify whether that 26.2% includes women who said, no, this was negative in terms of my feeling comfortable, etc., or those who simply said that you know, it was irrelevant, that it didn't offer any assistance. There's no indication that sharing fantasy was negative for any of the women in her study. Interestingly, Weiss found that women over the age of 46 were significantly less likely to share their fantasies than were younger women. Perhaps this is because older women do not want to share their fantasies about younger men with their equally older husbands, who feel threatened by such fantasies? Or is this too cliched an explanation? In our episode on polyamory, swapping, swinging, and the lifestyle, we cited a study in which older couples who had open relationships were happier and more satisfied, sexually and otherwise, than couples in that age group who remained strictly monogamous. Perhaps old age, something which is far, far in the future for me, thank God, is the time for sexual exploration, including in the realm of fantasy. In her book, Mating in Captivity, Reconciling the Erotic and the Domestic, Esther Perel observes that sharing fantasies can provide a way for couples to overcome conflicts around desire and intimacy. And in her book, The Power of Fantasy, Illusion and Eroticism in Everyday Life, Ginny Graham Scott tells us that many couples share their fantasies to feel closer and gain more intimacy and trust, or simply to become more aroused or affect a more powerful physical response. Interesting. I uh, highlight here the word trust. Trust. To share one's fantasy with one's partner means one trusts one's partner. One trusts one's partner. Sharing is always a matter of trust, and trust is good. Those who felt most guilty about having sexual fantasies during intercourse also appeared to believe that having such fantasies was akin to deceiving their sexual partner because it was not a shared activity. This raises the interesting question of whether or not people in fact tend to share their sexual fantasies with their partner. Do they? Although there is very little information about this issue, the data available suggests that only a minority do. In an unmarried sample of respondents and research, it was found that only 26% of the male participants and 32% of the female participants indicated that their sexual partners were aware of their sexual fantasies. In a younger married sample, the percentages were similar, 
only about 25% of men and women said that their spouses were aware of their sexual fantasies. Although only a minority of young couples actually share their fantasy, a survey of 2,079 university students from seven countries indicated that most said they would not feel any jealousy if their partner told them about their fantasies, even if the fantasies were about another person. This study did reveal an interesting sex difference, however. Across all countries, women reported less likelihood of feeling jealous than men. In her doctoral dissertation at Northern Illinois University, Sarah Elizabeth Roberts found significant effects between sharing fantasies with one's partner and sexual satisfaction, and specifically the interaction between sharing fantasies about someone else with one's partner while lovemaking and relationship status. She found positive correlations between sharing one's fantasies about one's partner and relationship satisfaction as well as sexual satisfaction. Negative correlations were found between fantasizing about someone other than one's partner and relationship satisfaction as well as sexual satisfaction. This should be taken in the context that is reported by Thomas V. Hicks and Harold Leitenberg in an article entitled Sexual Fantasies About One's Partner Versus Someone Else Gender Differences in Incidence and Frequency, published in the Journal of Sex Research, 80% of women and 98% of men in relationships had extradiatic fantasies. As we defined this earlier, fantasies about persons other than their relationship partners. In fact, men were 11 times more likely than women to have extradiatic sexual fantasies. As a rare personal aside, I find it arousing if my lover shares sexual fantasies about her having intimacies with another man or another woman. I become that other person with all of his or hers irresistibility. And it is also a way of learning what my lover likes. I'm thinking about the feeling, my lover says, of Lisa's tongue on my neck and then of its journey from there with tiny licks and nibbles down to... That sort of thing. It's a huge turn-on. Now, we turn to the topic of orgasm. In her Ph.D. dissertation for Smith College, Jillian Marie Weiss noted that most people create a trigger fantasy, meaning one that is used to assist them in reaching orgasm, in adolescence that they tend to keep as a foundation for lifelong fantasy. Helen Singer Kaplan, in her book The New Sex Therapy, observed that fantasy style has important influence on women's arousal and orgasmic response during intercourse. Some data report that only 50% of all American women are orgasmic during intercourse. Other surveys, such as the Height Report, have suggested even lower estimates. Although all such reports have methodological problems, there is general consensus that many American women are not orgasmic during intercourse. Furthermore, reports suggest that of those women who are trying to attain coital orgasms through therapy, as many as 20 to 80 percent remain inorgasmic during intercourse at the conclusion of their treatment. Sharon L. Lentz, School of Professional Psychology, University of Denver, and Antoinette M. Zeiss hypothesized that frequency of intercourse fantasies during masturbation, as opposed to other types of fantasies, would correlate with the percentage of coital orgasm. Their hypothesis was supported in this form. In addition, reported level of erotic fantasies during masturbation 
was the best predictor of coital orgasm scores out of the 20 fantasy predictor variables used in multiple regression. In addition, reported level of erotic fantasies during masturbation was the best predictor of coital orgasm scores out of the 12 fantasy predictor variables used in a multiple regression. On the other hand, women who have a high level of fantasies which exclude thoughts of intercourse, fantasies which are purely romantic, are less orgasmic during intercourse. Furthermore, a high ratio of erotic fantasies in masturbation was related to a lack of response to stories with romantic elements. Lentz and Zeiss concluded that having intercourse fantasies during masturbation is related to orgasmic response during intercourse and has clear implications for treatment of coital orgasmic dysfunction. In their study, 92% of men and 89% of women said that when they had a sexual fantasy, they enjoyed the feeling with no gender differences in positive ratings of excited and involved or negative ratings of guilt and frustration. An equal proportion of men and women have favorable attitudes regarding their sexual fantasies during intercourse. Women who experience more frequent orgasms during both intercourse and masturbation fantasize more. And women who had more erotic fantasies during masturbation experience more frequent orgasms during intercourse. In an article published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, Antoinette Zeiss and others have also shown that women who were instructed to fantasize about sexual intercourse during solitary masturbation had an increased likelihood of experiencing orgasm later when engaged in sexual activity with a partner. In a study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, Christian C. Joyal, Department of Psychology, Université de Québec et Trois-Rivières, Amélie Cossette and Vanessa Lapierre reported on the results of an Internet survey of 1,416 adults. They found that submission and domination themes were not only common for both men and women, but they were also significantly related to each other. Moreover, the presence of a single submissive fantasy was a significant predictor of overall scores for all sexual fantasies in both genders. About one-third of women dreamed about homosexual activities, although merely 19% considered themselves to be bisexual or homosexual. For men, roughly one-quarter had homosexual dreams, although 89.5% thought about themselves as heterosexual. They found that women are not as likely as men to have their dreams fulfilled, with about half of women who had submissive fantasies saying that they might not need for those fantasies to be fulfilled. In their study, Barbara E. Harriton and Jerome Singer found that women who were ranked as high fantasizers scored low on the traditional feminine traits of nurturance and affiliation. Low sexual fantasizers, women with few sexual fantasies, tended to express marital dissatisfaction, poor parental relations, and rarely reported orgasms during intercourse. Concentrating again on gender differences in sexual fantasy experiences, in seven of nine studies in which a direct comparison of the genders is possible, a higher percentage of men than women reported fantasizing during masturbation. Across all studies considered by them, the mean percentage of men who said they ever fantasized during masturbation was 85.9, 
whereas the mean percentage of women who said they ever fantasized during masturbation was 68.8. From these findings, it is reasonable to deduce that while masturbating, many women are concentrating on their own bodies and their own physical reaction rather than on some fantasy image, including an image of a sex partner. Perhaps the objective of masturbation, if one can call it that, for them is to learn about their own body rather than to be outside their bodies, or at least outside of the moment in physicality of the experience via fantasy. As someone once said to me, love is in the moment. Love is in the moment. Christopher J. Ollers of the Institute of Sexology and Sexual Medicine, Charité University Medical Center, Humboldt University, and his colleagues wrote an article entitled Care should be taken before labeling a sexual fantasy as unusual, let alone as deviant. They suggest that the focus should be on the effect of a sexual fantasy rather than on its content. In this article, they reported that among 367 men aged between 40 and 79 living in Berlin, more than half, 58.6%, acknowledged at least one paraphilic sexual fantasy including voyeurism, 34.9%, fetishism, 30%, and sadism, 21.8%. Again, these ratios might apply only to older and particularly libidinal men living in Berlin, but they contradict the idea that such fantasies are unusual or atypical. Interestingly, women with submissive sexual fantasies report more intense and more diverse sexual fantasies, erotophilia, than women without submissive sexual fantasies. More than a third of women acknowledge fantasies about giving cunnilingus, 35.7, having sex with another woman, 36.9%, and making love with, 36.9%, or watching, 42.4%, two other women having sex. Although, only 19% considered themselves either bisexual, 12.6%, or homosexual, 6%. Similarly, a quarter of men fantasized about giving fellatio, and a fifth fantasized about having sex with another man, 20.6%, although 89.5% classified themselves as heterosexual. An intriguing result of their investigation was the significant presence among men of themes related to she-males receiving anal sex, non-homosexual, and watching their spouses having sex with others. Indeed, Berlin is an interesting city. I've sometimes imagined living there. Not right now. It's too cold. In an article published in the journal Personality and Individual Differences, Glenn D. Wilson, Institute of Psychiatry, London, considered sexual fantasy from evolutionary and sociobiological perspective. He notes that the sociobiological analysis of male and female mating strategies leads to the prediction that men would be more inclined to fantasize sex with anonymous and multiple partners than women whose fantasies would suggest a desire for close-bonded and famous partners. These expectations were confirmed with reference to a nationwide quota poll of 788 British people representative of four age groups. The most striking difference appeared in the group sex item, a male-female ratio of 4 to 2. Let us return again to the subject of women's sexual fantasies, reporting from research published in prominent journals and elsewhere. 
In an article published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, Wendy A. Stock, Department of Psychology, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and James H. Gear reported that it appears that women can generate physiological sexual arousal in the absence of external erotic stimuli. In Stock and Gear's study, 84% of the sample responded with increased genital change to instructions to produce sexual fantasy, and 87% of the subjects responded with increased genital change while listening to an erotic recording. That recording described a heterosexual encounter that included undressing, foreplay, oral genital sex, and coitus. I propose that Stocking Gear repeat this experiment using this episode of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality as the erotic audio recording. <clears throat> However, once again, I digress. These researchers suggest that cultivating the ability to have sexual fantasies may help women by enabling them to bring their sexuality cognitively and behaviorally under their own locus of control. In The Psychology of Erotica, an unpublished doctoral dissertation at the State University of New York, I.R. Hyman found that both men and women were able to significantly increase their physiological arousal through fantasy, through fantasy alone. Hyman also found that ability to visualize a sexual fantasy was highly correlated with the ability to perceive arousal. In the Journal of Sex Research, Bruce J. Ellis, Department of Psychology, University of Michigan, and Donald Simons found that their male subjects had fantasized about more than a thousand people in the course of their lives. And their research subjects were junior college students. Imagine that. They also found that women were two and a half times more likely to report focusing on their own physical and emotional responses during sexual fantasy and were more likely to say that how their fantasized partner responds to them was more important than visual images of that partner. This is very much in keeping with other research mentioned earlier in this episode. Women were also far more likely to report that touching, including caressing, and specifically non-genital touching, was a very important part of their sexual fantasies. In addition, women reported that their imagined partners are uniquely able to arouse them both physically and emotionally. Build-up and interplay was more important for women than it was for men. These researchers found that 41% of women and only 16% of men said they focused on the personal or emotional characteristics of the partner in the fantasy, and 34% of women and 13% of men said they focused on their own physical and emotional response within the experience of the fantasy. In contrast, 50% of the men and 13% of the women said they focused on the physical partner. In contrast, 50% of the men and only 13% of the women said they focused on physical characteristics of fantasy partners. And 20% of men and 12% of women said they focused on sexual acts. When asked whether they focused more on visual images or feelings, 50% of women and only 19% of men said feelings, whereas 81% of the men, as compared to 43% of the women, said visual imagery. 
May we conclude from this that for women, sexual fantasizing is a more emotional experience than it is for men? May we also conclude that when women fantasize about fantasy male lovers, they are not fantasizing about fantasy partners who are well-endowed, one might say, but rather about partners who are emotionally responsive to them, who respect them, who relate to them as whole persons rather than as sex objects? But back to our research. Overwhelmingly, both sexes reported that positive feelings accompany sexual fantasy and the arousal which it engenders. In an article by Claude Cripol and Marcel Couture of the Department of Sexology at the University of Quebec, published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, those researchers found that the two most popular fantasies for both men and women were being with another partner, rather than their regular one, and reliving a previous sexual experience. In addition, the five themes more often chosen by women were among the top five chosen by men, namely being with another partner, a previous sexual encounter, a sexual scene, an erotic scene from an erotic film, and cunnilingus. What is the relation between susceptibility to hypnosis and sexual fantasy? This is precisely the question studied by Gregory D. Holler of Saybrook Graduate School and Research Center. Significant correlations were found between hypnotic susceptibility and sexual daydreaming, imagery and sexual fantasy, sexual daydreaming and sexual fantasy, sexual daydreaming and sexual satisfaction, and sexual fantasy and sexual satisfaction. Males had higher scores on sexual daydreaming and sexual satisfaction, while females scored higher in hypnotic susceptibility, imagery, and sexual fantasy. Maria Larsson and Sarah Jandot of Mama University in Sweden suggest that sexual fantasy or fantasies might cause problems that need to be resolved in order to establish a functioning intimate relationship. In one such example, they cite a fantasy fetish which had led to a cessation of sexual activity between husband and wife. These two female psychologists went on to ask the question, are women's rape fantasies an expression of an inherent wish in women to be dominated by men? Is femininity masochistic by nature? Or are they a way for women to allow themselves to enjoy sex, to not have to bear the responsibility of sexual activity because someone else made them do it, the so-called blame-avoidance theory? Or is it just an example of how women have internalized patriarchal oppression and come to embrace sexuality as male domination and even violence? Or might it be that women dream of being so desirable that men cannot resist them? Is it the case that when men fantasize about being dominated, is it because they need relief from the role of always being powerful, always being in control, always being active and aggressive? Fantasy as a form of relief from this role imposed on them by society? Although more women than men seem to fantasize about being dominated in one way or the other, that is, being tied up, raped, beaten, whipped, etc., studies show quite varied results on how many women actually have such fantasies. Between 31% and 57% of women have had fantasies of being forced into sex, but 
Research shows that for only between 9 and 17 percent are such fantasies frequent or favored. Thus, to say that it is a common female fantasy is actually, very likely, something of an exaggeration. What are other common types of fantasies, and what are the gender differences? Per an article by Michael S. Kimmel and Rebecca F. Plant, as published in Kimmel's book, Gender and Desire, Essays on Male Sexuality, the fantasy of having sex with a famous person was actually more common among men, 6.59% as compared to 1.61%, which perhaps ran contrary to the expectations of some. In today's world, a man, I wouldn't venture to say who, might fantasize about having sex with Miley Cyrus. But for women, like, who is there to fantasize about anymore? Other than myself, of course. Kimmel and Plant conclude by saying, the potential impact of fantasy on everyday life has to do with whether they provoke a sense of shame or of joy, how the individual organizes his or her sex life in practice, how much space the actual fantasies may be given or demand, whether they facilitate or complicate interactions with others, etc. Before we wrap up this episode, let us turn once again to male sexual fantasy, other than ones about Miley Cyrus. David Smith and Ray Over of the Department of Psychology, La Trobe University, Bundura, Victoria, Australia, conducted research in which 66 men provided ratings of the extent to which they regarded fantasies depicting nominated sexual activities as sexually arousing. When considered across all the themes representing each dimension, the genital themes were rated as being the most sexually arousing, followed by public sex themes, then sensual themes, next sexual dominance slash submission themes, and finally sexual aggression themes. The most arousing genital fantasy for men was to orally stimulate a woman's genitals. This is followed by a woman caresses your penis, caressing a woman's vagina, a woman orally stimulates your genitals, and being undressed by a woman. The highest rated public sex fantasy was to be sexually intimate with many women at the same time. The highest rated sensual fantasy was to caress a woman's breast. The highest rated sexual dominance fantasy, in fact, the highest rated of all of the fantasies in that category, was being tied up and sexually assaulted by a woman. In terms of both ratings for sexual arousal, how aroused men were in the course of having these fantasies, and in terms of frequency of use, the sexual aggression fantasies overall rated lowest. Lower than genital fantasies, lower than public sex, lower than sensual fantasies. Sexual aggression fantasies included humiliating a woman and beating up a woman, but also undergoing aggressiveness, which rated relatively highly within this group. So in this study, men were not particularly turned on by sexual aggression fantasies in general, but among sexual aggression fantasies, undergoing sexual aggressiveness was relatively exciting, being the object of sexual aggression by a woman was relatively exciting. In another type of study, the same Australian researchers assessed habituation and fantasy-induced sexual arousal 
In another type of study, the same Australian researchers assessed habituation in fantasy-induced sexual arousal by measuring both penile circumference and subjective arousal while men engaged in structured sexual fantasy over eight trials, each lasting two minutes. Arousal levels were higher for men with vivid imagery than for men with non-vivid imagery. But within each group, there was no reduction in the level of either physiological or subjective sexual arousal over trials. Therefore, men can recycle the same sexual fantasy over and over again and achieve the same level of arousal. They do not habituate, quote-unquote, to a fantasy, meaning that a fantasy's power to arouse them physiologically does not diminish. Or, is this a manifestation of Freud's old bugaboo, the Wiederholungsfahn, the compulsion to repeat? A bit of advice from your host, be creative in all things, including your sexual fantasies. Where does all of this research leave us? perhaps with the conclusion that women are more creative, imaginative, and emotional in their sexual fantasy life. We propose that women should open the door of their fantasy life to men. And here I'm not talking about men reading erotica written by women, although much of it is outstanding from the time of Sappho on. Aeneas Nin, Mary Gateskill, Anne Rice, Regine DeForge, Alina Reyes, Francesca Mazzacuato, Elizabeth Atacroce, Tobsha Lerner, Emily McGuire, Hitomi Kanahara, Lucy Taylor. And that's before we even skim the surface of the erotic memoirs championed by Kathy Millett, Melissa P., and countless others. Such sharing of sexual fantasies should happen on a personal level, one-to-one. One of the greatest gifts a woman can give to a man is to share her fantasies with him. Not only sexual and erotic fantasies, but her fantasies of her own life, her own dreams, of the marvels of the future, which she is constantly creating, about which she is constantly fantasizing. Our fantasies, sexual and otherwise, ask us to actualize them, beckon us to make them real. This is what love is about. Alistair Crowley famously said, Love is the law but many people do not know that precept in its entirety. Love is the law, love under will. Love under the will to create, to make happen, to make real. Before we wrap up, I would like to recommend an excellent podcast by my colleague and friend, Anita Di Francesco, specifically on the subject of sexual fantasy. This may be found on her Anita Di Francesco account on SoundCloud, where she did her podcast for a certain period of time. She has now moved over to the other podcast platforms, and you can hear her everywhere as Discover Joyous Love on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, all the rest of them, including Audacity. And with that, I will leave you to your fantasies. May they arouse you to new heights of sensuality. That is, after all, the theme and the purpose of this podcast. And may each of you find your true flame with whom to share those fantasies, that sensuality, and that love.
Future topics on explore ecstatic sensuality include synesthesia, the perceptual phenomenon in which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to involuntary experiences in a second sensory cognitive pathway. To develop and encourage sensual synesthesia is to touch your lover with your eyes, to hear your lover with your touch, to see the colors of the emotions that pass between you, to taste the flavors, to inhale the full richness. We will also be doing deep dives into the neuroscience of sensuality, into the depth psychology and psychodynamics of feminine sensuality, and into the phenomenon of ecstasy, as it has been experienced by all species since the beginning of time. All here on your podcast, Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Here's my recommendation of a love and relationship coach and a psychotherapist. Her name is Anita DeFrancesco. Her website is www.tantrawisdom.com. She's also on her Tantra Wisdom Facebook business page and her love and relationship coach Facebook page. 
She is not only a love and relationship counselor and psychotherapist, she is a two-time national award-winning journalist and the author of two excellent books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, which deals with matters such as the ones we discuss here in this podcast, mindfulness, sexuality, relationships, and so forth, and the Donna Gentili story, a spellbinding true crime thriller about the brutal murder of her first cousin and of her attempts to identify the killer. Both of these books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, and the Donna Gentili story are available on Amazon or check her website. Adoring and honoring someone you truly admire is an exponential pleasure because in the process you are also adoring and honoring yourself. I am sensitive and perceptive enough to understand and appreciate and love and adore my beloved special gifts, the things that are most marvelous and unique about her. True love of another is also the highest, best, and most exalted form of self-love. Love is in the now, in the moment. The thought of the one you love should fill you with transcendent joy. You should tingle from head to toe and immediately want to give them the universe. With that feeling, all of the neurotic lack of trust and self-doubt vanish like toxic dust blowing away in the wind and you are left not only truly whole, not only truly yourself, but ready to become new selves and to share those selves with your beloved. When two people are ready to take this journey together, it is magic. It is the greatest magic there is.